Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to welcome to the show today an amazing writer and director. He's the man behind such films as Bite Marks, The Last Straight Man, Confessions, and the recent audio horror series Fiendish Things. Welcome to the show, Mark Bessinger. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for coming, Mark. I really appreciate it. No problem. Uh, I would like to start the show, as I always do, by asking you the same first question I ask all my guests, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your point of entry? What interests you about it? Why horror? Well, you know, back in the mid-late 70s, I think there was a magazine uh, uh, called uh, The Monster Times, and it was... A, it was like a printed on newspaper stock. When you actually read it, it was the size of a newspaper folded like a couple of times down to magazine size. And in one of the editorials, there was a uh, an editorial bit by one of the the, the, the the magazine's owners who said, if you're a young boy and you're not interested, if you're too young for girls and you're not interested in sports or cars, what else is there for you? And I think to a degree, other than the fact that I wouldn't have gone with girls anyway, other, I think <laughs> to a degree that, that that's that's true. That was true for me, at least. I mean, I had no interest in sports. I had no interest in cars. Certainly no interest in girls. But horror just seemed to be the thing that just immediately grabbed me. And I I can't really – I don't know if it's the, if it's, you know, the, the whole – you know, I think it was just a thing. I lived in a very small town in southern Indiana. Life was very much the same from day to day. And then all of a sudden, here's this thing that introduces such an unknown, out, outrageous element that I think I, that was probably part of the reason why I was drawn to it. What I really like about that assertion is, is like, if you're too young for girls and you don't like sports or cars, as if there are only a few things in the pantheon of human existence that you're allowed to be interested in, whether male or not. It was uh, a short editorial. Well, apparently so. Uh, and so from, from that, helping sort of dictate what your interest was, but obviously you were truly interested. Yeah. Um, what was the first horror film that you recall really grabbing you and pulling you in? Uh, that would be uh, Revenge of the Creature, which was the first sequel to the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, I was in first grade, and I was coming home from school, and my mother always had the three o'clock afternoon movie on, and my mother was a big horror fan. And I walked into the house, and I'm and just as I'm entering the family room, mom, my mom is sitting in a chair with my little brother on her lap, and we're watching, and she's watching this movie. And I walk in just at the moment when the creature jumps out of his holding pen in the movie and starts terrorizing the park. And that just, I was just like, "What is that?" Because I saw this this amazing looking monster, and I'd never seen anything like it before. And I, and it was just, it just, it was amazing. I'm just like, "Wow!" So it. It just grabbed me right from the bat, and I'm like, and just made me like, what's you know, what are these things? What you know, if here's this is a monster, what are what are some other things out there that I don't know about? Uh, other creatures and uh, of of uh, darkness. <laughs> now I've I've been your home, and you have quite mm-hmm. a collection of the creature from the Black Lagoon uh, memorabilia mm-hmm. and, and things. And so, what I think is interesting, if that's your first monster, it, like it took hold and never really let go. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and what is it specifically about the creature that has stayed with you beyond being your first? Because obviously you have an affinity for this monster overall. 
I think it's because the creature from the Black Lagoon uh, looks like a monster. It doesn't look... If you look at... I mean, I watched... Yeah, I watched Frankenstein, but Frankenstein is really just a big guy with a flat head and a suit, you know? And I watched <laughs> Dracula, and Dracula's just this guy in a tuxedo and a cape. The creature from the Black Lagoon was the first monster I saw that looked like a monster, and it didn't look human. And if you give even just a little bit of imagination you cannot picture you don't picture the guy underneath all the the rubber who's in there you know and i think that plus you know the creature's a little different i mean you you could probably arguably make some of these points for the frankenstein monster but the creature you know is not the the villain really in his films he's you know people come into his territory they start like messing with him and his home and or he's kidnapped and brought to this strange place, you know, and he's he's more of a victim than he is like the villain. He's just kind of acting out because of his situation. What's interesting about a lot of the universal monsters, uh, and you listed Dracula and Frankenstein and the creature, is uh, that most of them, through the origin and backstory, are sympathetic characters, with mm-hmm. the exception of Dracula. I think this is why Dracula, in the way, whenever we see Dracula paired with other monsters, he's always the agitator, or he's the most powerful or villainous. Right. Because Dracula has agency, and he knows what he's doing, and he kind of loves that he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Frankenstein monster is a tragic figure. The creature yes. from the Black Lagoon was born that way. Like, he can't help it. Mm-hmm. The Wolfman is cursed, you know, and, and so forth. Uh, and I think that that's interesting, especially with the queer relationship to how we connect to monsters uh, because there is a relatability to that otherness. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, maybe to the chagrin of the fact that we're still relating that otherness to these these kind of horrifying monsters, but in an era where otherness was only represented in that way, it explains why maybe we sympathize, maybe we are drawn to that. Yeah, I think it's true. That makes sense. So... You're enchanted by the creature from the Black Lagoon, and I assume you then go into this world of watching movies uh, and uh, taking an active interest. Right. Uh, At what point did you decide that watching them wasn't enough and you wanted to start making horror films? Well, that was pretty... That came pretty young. I mean, um, I, I, I got interested in making films when I was... I don't know how old I was. Very young. Probably... Eight, and I was messing around our hall closet just as kids do, and I found a, uh, um, I found a, um, a box basically. Opened it up, and it had it was had my mother's Super Eight movie camera in it, and I'm like, oh, what's this? And so started messing with it, and my mom saw that I had an interest in, it, so she bought me some rolls of film, and I'd go out and shoot little movies with you know my cousins or the kids from the neighborhood or something like that and this is back when you like you shoot your film you take it to the drugstore and you know two weeks later you get your movie back (laughs) Um, a process that I think my parents still think that's how it works Um, but it was um, it's just uh, it was that and that was so much fun and then just to, to watch it later and you're creating you know this is like a pretty high concept for a little kid but it's still true it's like you're creating something you're creating little pieces of art and you see how they you bring in people to watch them and you see how they react to them and that just kind of gets you fired up to do more and so it was uh, it actually took me a while before I decided to pursue it for real you know I was probably in my 20s I'd gone to college uh, and 
I, I was in college for a couple of years. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, I dropped out. This was in 1980, and I oh, decided to open my own video store. This was at the very beginning of the home video market. Right. Um, uh, VHS decks were, weighed like 30 pounds, and they had piano keys. And it was all mechanical instead of electronic. And a, a, a VHS recorder cost $1,000. So um, I decided to go into this and, and become a video store where we sold movies. And... Um, yeah, I ran that for about a year, and then we call, and then I just realized that it, I didn't want to make, I didn't want to rent movies out to other people. I wanted to make them myself. So I went back to college, got my bachelor's, specializing in creative writing, and then went to film school at Columbia College Chicago, and uh, specializing in screenwriting there, and then started making like you know my feature films. And before we talk about your first feature film that you made in Chicago, I want to ask, so you made these Super 8 films as a kid. Mm-hmm. Do you still have them or have you seen them since? I have some of them. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure where they are. <laughs> <laughs> I have some of them. Um, I actually, you know what? I actually submitted one to Saturday Night Live. This was back when they were taking films, you know, because you remember how Mr. Bill was just an original film that someone sent in and just took off. Right. And I made this one. It was it was really stupid. It was called The Incredible Adventures of Captain Incompetent. And for some reason, I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> so I sent it to Saturday Night Live as part of their film co- competition. Uh, I think they kept it for a couple months before they sent it back with no explanation, no rejection letter, nothing. But um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was doing little movies like that, usually like superhero parodies or you know horror movie horror things that were just like monsters fighting each other and with no real story. But it was just still something still fun to to watch and do. And but I know I have a few of them around someplace. I, I yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Probably packed away in my black hole of a garage someplace. I do like the, it's kind of a badge of honor to have been rejected by Lord Michaels though. Uh, <laughs> in a way. I mean, espe- I'll take my run yet. Especially in the era when they were still taking submissions because that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. So you got to submit to SNL before it was the, the many headed beast that it is today. That is correct. So that's cool. I didn't know that. So now let's leap ahead. You had the video store. You go to film school and uh, you start work on your first feature, I believe, in Chicago. Is that Ninja yes, Zombie? Yes, that was Ninja Zombie. Um, we did what, what happened was this was like the the 90, early 90s. And there was this new wave of filmmaking where everybody was started shooting on Super 8. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a company in California, I think, that were offering for like um Ten twenty thousand dollars. You would they would send you an entire Super Eight production package, your camera, your mics, uh, sound recorder, projector, everything. And a friend of mine and I, whose name was Don Rasmus, and the two of us got together and decided to um, do this. So we we bought this package and we started thinking about okay, we want to make a feature film because someone else had had done it. Um, there was a guy, I think Mark. Polish who direct or um, I'm getting the name wrong, but he directed a movie called A Polish Vampire in Burbank. Oh, Mark Pirro. Mark Pirro, thank you. Yeah. And it was, uh, yes, and it was it was a big hit, 
And so suddenly everybody was looking at these Super 8 features. Mm -hmm. So we decided, we tried to think of like what it was going to be about, you know, and we were running through things like Vampire Cop. And I'm like, well, you know, um, that means we have to shoot at night and Super 8 doesn't have that much, you know, latitude for darkness. So we thought about that. We thought about Ninja Nuns. We scrapped that. And then we decided we want to keep the Ninja, but bringing a monster that could walk around the daylight so we decided to do a zombie movie so it was like ninja zombie and that, that that's how that came about and uh, we shot it oh, know, over the course of like two and a half weeks i think up in in mostly in chicago but then up and toward the uh in uh toward the wisconsin border we shot a lot up there too i would like the record to show that uh i really would love to see ninja nuns <laughs> Uh, I have an so would I. I have an affinity for a non exploitation <laughs> film, but I have seen Ninja Zombie, and it's a film I enjoy a great deal. And there was a uh, a incident when you were making the movie where a newspaper reported something erroneous. Tell me this story. <laughs> we, it was one. I think it was like our first night of filming, and we were shooting in Chicago on a semi major street, and we were right off the L train. And the, the the day before, the one of the two major papers in Chicago, I can't remember if it was the Sun Times or the Tribune, said in the like what's happening around town column that a film was being shot in the city called Ninja Zombie, and it starred Tom Cruise and uh, Meryl Streep. And I was just like, what? And it freaked me out because I remember thinking, oh my God, there's going to be thousands of people. Because it also gave our location. Oh, wow. And I thought thousands of people are going to show up. We're not going to be able to shoot anything. And so we contacted the paper and said, you know, this isn't true. You know, so the next day they the same guy said, um, yeah, we made a mistake. Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep are not in this movie. Ninja Zombie is a B picture with no name actors. Wow, thanks. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, thanks for the backhanded retraction. <laughs> I am curious how they made that mistake in the first place. It just seems so bizarre. Yeah, I, I have no idea and why they would pick those two think those two actors would, were in this movie. We gave them no press materials. I mean, <laughs> arguably, I would love to see Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep in Ninja Zombie, but that's a whole too. different ballgame. <laughs> uh, now, Ninja Zombie ended up having a very interesting life in that it was sort of a lost film for a while. Yeah, that kind of happens with my early pictures, it seems. I Ninja Zombie, we, we signed a deal with a rep uh, to try to sell it, and he was a, some rep in uh, in New York City, and I think the deal was for like ten years. And during that whole time, nothing ever happened with it. And toward the end of the contract, I remember you know talking to him. He's like, "Well, I'm just trying to." He goes, "I'm I'm trying. I'm pitching it by itself. I'm pitching it with in in groups with other films, and I just can't seem to do anything with it." And I'm like, "Okay, fine." So the contract ended. We got the movie back. And I just kind of put it away and stopped thinking about it. I'm like, well, if he can't get, if he can't sell it, then certainly I can't. Right. And then um, about three years ago, I got a, an email from um, this guy at uh, Bleeding Skull Video, and he said, "Whatever happened to Ninja Zombie?" And I was like, "How do you know about this movie?" And what had happened was in the very first issue of Film Threat, we had sent a few screeners out. And one was to Film Threat magazine. And in the very first issue, on the last page, they reviewed it. 
and they gave it a pretty favorable review. And then, boom, it, again, it was gone. So this guy said, yeah, he goes, I was looking on the internet, and I came across this old article about Ninja Zombie. So I'm, like, wondering whatever happened. And I told him the story, and he's like, well, look, he's like, we specialize in finding movies like that and giving them a proper release. And I was like, oh. So I sent him a screener. He looked at it, and he said, yeah, we want to do this movie. So it's taken a few years. It's looking like they're finally getting close to releasing it. Um, and it's so Ninja Zombie is finally going to come out on uh, DVD streaming and a limited special edition VHS oh, wow. run of about 500 pieces, they're telling me. That's super underground. Like, like That's like cult underground prestige. That's really <laughs> yeah. cool. So that should be coming out through, um, through Bleeding Skull sometime. Probably, if not the end of this year, then hopefully the first quarter of next year. That's cool. Well, congratulations on it finally getting out to the world. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> uh, and as you alluded to, um, it wasn't your only film that kind of got lost in the ether uh, for a minute. You, after making Ninja Zombie, made a gay romance movie called Rhapsody, which uh, had a little bit of an interesting journey as well. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, we about a year later, I wanted to do another film, and I thought, well, I wanted to kind of work on one by myself. So I had written this script called Rhapsody, which was kind of a, uh, it was a romantic drama. And we decided to, when I say we, I mean the royal we. Yeah. Um, I decided to shoot on uh, super 16 millimeter, because I, I still had access to my film school. And so we f- we started shooting it. Um, we had this great cast, started filming it, um, got it all cut together. And but I ran out of money and I thought, OK, I need to find some money to finish this thing. So and it was about the time I decided to move out to Los Angeles. So I came out to Los Angeles. And I had meetings with the artistic arms of all the major studios, you know, Searchlight and um, like things like that. And um, nobody would give me the money for it. I also met with um, Marcus Hu at at uh, Strand, Strand releasing. Mm-hmm. He was actually the best one. He we met at uh, at uh, the Abbey, and I was forty five minutes late because I was new to town. I couldn't find a parking space, and to, you know, uh, he actually stayed and waited for me. But um, he gave me some really good advice. He said, "Look." He said, no one's going to make you, help you finish your first film. They might your second, but not your first. He's like, and that includes us. He's like, but my advice to you is, he's like, all you really need to do is finish editing and do a sound mix. He's like, you can probably find a way to do that yourself instead of trying to find money for it. And I thought, you know, that's really good advice. But I kind of just, again, I just didn't really feel like it was going to happen. So I just kind of put all the elements away. And went on doing other things. And then when editing software became available for people at a fairly you know, inexpensive rate, I got my, I think it was the Avid at the time, I got the Avid system. And I ended up cutting the thing together myself. And then I sent, well, I sent all the, I, I sent all the footage back to my old film school. They now had a, uh, a way to digitize super 16 millimeter. So they re-digitized everything from scratch, sent me the digital footage. I edited it myself, did a sound mix, and then um, put it out. And this time it has been, it's, it's, it's been pretty well received. You know, it's playing, we put it up on uh, Amazon Prime. Um, and then we took it down because they wanted it to have they, they changed the rules so they wanted things to have closed captioning right and I'm like I'm not going to do that so I took the movie down 
and um, set it off to some other places. And uh, happy to say that uh, Reverie is going to get it. Uh, or Reverie actually has it, and they're going to be showing it. I think it, I think it debuts today. Yes, today's air date, uh, November 17th. Uh, Rhapsody does drop here on uh, Reverie, for those of you listening. So please check it out. The journey that this movie has taken. <laughs> I'm glad that Mark's with us today uh, to celebrate its release on the Reverie streaming platform. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's great. But luckily, the next feature that you made didn't have to wait a, d- a decade <laughs> to come out. And uh, that was Bite Marks. Right. And what had happened was there was this guy that I worked for, he, and he had a production company. And we were sitting around just chatting. And he, so he, he goes, well, he goes, let's, he, go, he says, um, I want to do something. I want to think outside the box. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, let's make a real movie, a feature film. And I was like, uh, okay, great. Yeah. And he told me, he's like, yeah, when you're ready, just pitch me a couple things and we'll go. And I'm like, I'm, I can pitch you a couple things right now. So I pitched him two ideas. He liked the bite marks one. And the only difference was at first I had originally in, uh, saw it as a heterosexual couple right. getting picked up by a, a, a semi-truck driver and it being very, very dark. And he was like, I like that one, but can we make it a gay couple instead? And I'm like, sure, I, right. know, no problem. So I started writing it, and as I started writing it, I inserted a joke, and I really liked the way it played. So I inserted another one, and then another one. The next thing I know, the tone's getting lighter and lighter and lighter, until by the time we were ready to shoot, it was you know a full-out you know horror comedy. Right. Um, but we filmed it in uh, southern Indiana because I knew I needed to go someplace where I could uh, um, shoot for little money because the budget wasn't that big. Right. And I knew I could probably get some deals outside of you know California because in California, everybody has something and everybody knows what that something's worth. Exactly. Whether it's a location or anything. So we, uh, we flew the, uh, the, three, the four leads and a makeup guy and his assistant from Los Angeles. And then I went along, of course. And um, we filmed in Southern Indiana. And it, was, uh, it, was, it worked out really well, except for the rain. Well, you will have that in the Midwest. <laughs> uh, now, and the thing is, is uh, Bite Marks got quite a bit of attention and ended up playing in regular rotation on Logo and here. It's also notable because uh, it's the first time uh, Fright Night Stephen Jeffries played a vampire since Fright Night. Yeah, How did you true. get him involved? Well, we when we were getting ready to, when I was getting ready to shoot this thing, when I was getting ready to make it, um, I had a friend over named Sam Park and he was with um, he, had a, he, he was part owner of a comic books co- a company called Monsterverse at the time. Mm-hmm. And we were talking, and I said, you know, what do you think? Should I put a uh, – should I? is it worthwhile to put a name in the film? Because, you know, back in the 80s with those straight-to-video releases, you'd have – you know names of them. If, if it's a, even if it was something like Artie Johnson or Ruth Buzzy or yeah. you know Jamie Farr, there's always a name. And I found out later that was because it would help foreign sales to have even a name like that in it. Right. But I didn't know if that was still the case, if that was still necessary. And he said, "Well, you know, what can it hurt?" So we started talking about um, who could go in it. And he goes, "Well, you could probably get Clue Gulliger or maybe Tony Todd." And and then I suddenly realized, that, <laughs> suddenly remembered that I 
did kind of know Stephen Jeffries. We'd met a few times in the past. And so I contacted him on MySpace. This tells you how, uh, this tells you how long ago that was. So I contacted him on MySpace. He says, yeah, send me a script. I sang the script, and he loved it. And he goes, yeah, I'd love to do it. So that's how he got involved with it. And uh, he was wonderful to work with. So, so good. So much fun in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Because the movie did feature gay content and it was a, a gay horror comedy, uh, at the time when you were submitting to festivals, did you have any issues? Because it was sort of a new kind of film being released. Yes and no. And here's why. Here's, here's what that means. When we sent it to uh, gay film festivals, they loved it. We got into a couple dozen film festivals and because they just, I guess there weren't a lot of horror gay films. Mm-hmm. And they, when they saw something new coming in like that, they wanted to have it. So we got into a lot of gay festivals. As far as like the straight horror festivals, we didn't get into a lot of those. And uh, I've always said that you know the horror community the heterosexual horror community is more like a bunch of 12 year old fanboys and (laughs) i think those 12 year old fanboys are like "Ooh, a movie you know where two guys are like having sex in it i can't you know i don't want i don't want to watch it right and if you look at a lot of the um uh reviews of the film the negative reviews a lot of them will start off like, man, I don't want to, I hate saying that I didn't like this movie because people are going to interpret it as me being homophobic. And then they'll go on to talk about what they didn't like in the movie. And it's all about the gay sex scenes. Oh, I didn't like the gay sex. I didn't like this. And I'm like, well, yeah, you kind of are being homophobic if that's what, if that's what you didn't like about it. Right. We did play, a, we did play a couple um, and it was well received at them. But um, we, when we made the film, we thought we were being so clever. We thought we were going to appeal to two demographics. We thought we were going to get the horror fans the straight horror fans and the gay fans and what really happened was that when it came out sales were okay but i think it was it they weren't as what we were expecting and it kind of seemed that the gay fans turned against it because they didn't like the horror aspect of it and then the horror fans turned again against it because they didn't like the gay aspect of it right so what we thought was going to be it's it's two main appealing points actually kind of turned out to be like detrimental for us but like a lot of cult films it ended up finding its own life which is really cool mm-hmm. yeah i uh, i get a lot of people emailing me about how much they like it so it's it's definitely cultish and certainly if people were uh unnerved by the gay sex of bite marks um your next feature the last straight man must have sent some people running for the hills but that's not a horror feature tell me about the genesis of the last straight man because i think it's a really fascinating uh piece and it's a real intimate movie well when you work with low budgets you've got to try to find ways to restrict Mm -hmm. you know your spending and one of those is to try to center everything around one location and so i thought well for my next movie i wanted to do a new i wanted to do like a gay romance and um and let's face it when it comes to gay films and we can be as all haughty totty and and talk about art as much as we want but the fact is, nudity and sex sells. You right. know, this is, shouldn't be a big surprise, but for some reason, we, we, we always like to act surprised that it is. Right. Um, so I knew I wanted to do a movie. I knew I wanted to have a lot of nudity and sex in it. And I, so I'm trying to think of like, what we can do. And I had seen the film same time next year. 
which I love. Right. And I thought, well, why can't we do something along those lines? We'll set it in, it'll start out being about a bachelor party in which the groom-to-be and his best friend who's in the closet about being gay hook up. But instead of the, the, the straight guy freaking out about it, he actually likes it and says, look, I, you know, let's, so the, so the two of them decide to um, return to that hotel suite every year on the same day to catch up and hook up and progress, you know, explore with each other a little further. Right. Um, so I had the two main characters were the, were the ones to cast. And the first guy I went with was a guy called Scott Sell. Mm-hmm. He lived in Detroit at the time. I had seen him do a little um, local access horror show and he was pretty good in it. And I thought he had a great look and so I contacted him. He did a video audition um, and I said, okay, yeah, if you want to do it, it, the part's yours. And he, he read the script and he liked the script. Although I found out later that he almost turned me down because he wasn't sure he could do the, the nudity and the sex. But then he, we talked on the phone several times about it and I'm, I guess I made him feel comfortable enough about it that he, he agreed to do it. And we had cast another guy, but about a month before we were, we were getting ready to shoot, he called me up and he said he had to drop out because his father had cancer and he might be called upon to, to go to the East Coast at any moment. So um, I talked to another person, another actor. He didn't want to do it because the gay sex made him uncomfortable. And then the producer, one of the producers, Benjamin Lutz, says, I think I have someone who might be good for you. So he brought Mark Cirillo over. Um, now, Mark Cirillo's done lots of gay projects. He's done lots of full frontal nudity. So that wasn't a big deal for him. Uh, and so he came over and he auditioned. And he was wonderful. So I said, great. Okay, so we cast them. We had, before we filmed, we I brought Scott out a week before we filmed so we could have a week's worth of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And then we went to Los, uh, we went to uh, Palm Springs and filmed at what was the uh, Hotel Z, I think, at the time. And... We, they had one suite, and we went and looked at it, and it turned out it was it was going to work for us. And so I told them, I said, look, we're going to be shooting a film in here. Um, I said, it's not porn. It's just, a, it's going just, it's a drama. Although and, I suspect if you were like, we're shooting porn, <laughs> Palm Springs would be like, whatever. Well, I, when I told the, the guy that, uh, the manager that, he's like, look, he's like, as long as you pay for the room, once the doors are closed, as long as it's legal, we don't care what you do in there. So I'm like, all right. So the, I saw that as I took that as a green light. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and were there any difficulties shooting? Because there, some of the scenes are very steamy, and like you said, there is some nudity. But was there any uh, difficulty getting some of those shots? No, not really. The only one, the only one was more difficult for me than the actors. We did a shot where. Um, it's the last moment, I think, where they meet at the in the hotel in the film. So Mark Cirillo comes in. He's his bags are being brought in by a bellhop, and he sees that Scott is already there. His friend Scott's already there, and he looks into a mirror, which allows him to see into the bedroom. And in the bedroom, um, Scott's laying on the bed, naked, wearing a cowboy hat, and smoking a cigar, <clears throat> and. So when we shot that, this was this was Scott's only moment of full frontal nudity in the film. And it was one of the last things I think we did. So I look, we shoot this, we shoot this, and I realized that the way Scott's lying, you can't see his penis. 
And I thought, okay, <laughs> now I've got to go in there and try to tell him that he has to display his penis in a way that doesn't make me look like a pervert. Um, you know, so I walk in there and, you know, and Scott's got the room, you know, we, the way it's filmed, he, he, there was no one else in the room with him. So right. he's there by himself. So I walk in there and I'm like, um, Scott, so, um, you know, um, we agreed that if if we were going to do this, we were going to go all the way with it, and da, da 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 And he's like, yeah. And I said, okay, can you just like maybe angle your hips a little bit? And he did, but it still wasn't right. And I said, okay, look, can you just like grab your dick and lay it across your thigh that, so we can see it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. You know, and we got the shot. Took two takes. We got the shot, and boom, we were we were off and running to something else. So take note, listeners, the conversations you have to have. <laughs> To make a film. <laughs> but uh, what resulted was uh, remarkable and, and truly traumatic and I think emotional movie. I, I think that uh, the film really has a lot of impact. Yes, there is uh, a steaminess to it. Yes, of course, sex sells. But I think the power of Last Straight Man and the reviews that you received reflect this is that it's really a human story and uh, it's, it's really beautifully realized. Thank you. You know, yeah, it's probably been my best received film. And a lot of people would email me and the actors and they would say, this is me. I mean, I was I had a I was in love or I had a crush on my my best friend who was straight. And, you know, and they just really related to it for that reason. And so, you know, I get emails. People people are oh, they want a sequel so bad. But uh, I'm like not really, really ready for that right now. I think the movie's pretty self-contained, and I kind of like it that way. But um, well, it's also where do you go from there? Yeah, that's true. I mean, it tells a pretty well-rounded, complete story, and I just don't see where it would it could go. Whereas your next feature was a series of stories that go a lot of places. It's a movie <laughs> called Confessions, and it's ten stories. We shot 16 of them, but uh, we, we selected uh, what we thought were the, the 10 that best fit together for the feature. And the project is individual stories, confessions, if you will, of, of different people revealing parts of themselves. And some of them are funny. Some of them mm -hmm. are very much horror movies, getting back to the roots. Right. Uh, tell me a little bit about that project. Well... You know, as, as most directors, I had so many friends who are actors, and I want to work with a lot of these people. But when you do a film, generally, I can only find, you know, uh, you know a I can only cast maybe one or two of them in the film because that's all the, that the parts were called for. Right. And I just wanted to try to think of something where I could get to work with more and more of these people. So I originally, Confessions was going to be a web series where each confession would be like its own episode. Right. And then after we filmed them and we realized that we should try to put this out as a feature and we picked the 10 best, um, we just, we, I knew I wanted the one with uh, the actor starring uh, Dana Jeldson to be the first one because that had um, a filmic episode. And then I wanted the last one um, we had the, we had the, uh, the the Fred Astaire dance number. Right. I knew I wanted that to be last. So then I got I sat down with two of the other producers, Benjamin Lutz and David Alonson Broadberry, who also performs in one of the segments. And we just we had each of the each of the the confessions on a on a on a on a card, a two by four index card, and we just started shuffling them around until we like 
you know, looked at the ones that would fit together and, okay, this one's, this one's romantic. So let's follow that one up with something sarcastic and let's follow that one up with something funny and let's follow that one up with something scary. And then, uh, and, uh, that's just kind of how it all fit together. And, um, we sent a screener to TLA and they wanted it immediately. So we, you know, we ended up distributing it through them. And there is rumor that there might be confessions too. We are working on something like that because what happened was uh, we have the six confessions that we didn't use. They are um, bonus features on the DVD, but there have we have received some interest about uh, shooting some extra confessions to flesh out another 90-minute feature. So we'll see if that happens. And because you seem interested in telling encapsulated stories in this anthology, anthologized format, some are funny, some are scary, uh, it brings us to uh, your most recent project that is not a film at all, but mm-hmm. is in fact an audio series called Fiendish Things. And Fiendish Things is a uh, episodic horror series where each week there's a new story uh, that harkens back to kind of like radio serials of yesteryear. Yeah. Um, were you a fan of, of old radio plays? Oh, I love those. I mean, to me, you know, they say theater of the mind is one of the most, you know, important, strongest things. And I think that's right. And when I was uh, young, I used to uh, listen to, I used to lie on the floor in front of the radio with a, a fan on me and <laughs> and just listen to the CBS radio mystery theater a lot. That was the first one that I that I listened to. And then since then, I've I've gotten some recordings of like, Shows like Lights Out and Suspense and Inner Sanctum and listen to those. And I've just always really liked that, how you can tell a story and have in, in someone's mind, let them put the pick. You supply the audio, let them supply the video. And I just think it's really it's a really powerful and fun to work in medium. Well, in the second season of Fiendish Things just debuted on Halloween. Yes. Uh but at what point did you decide that you wanted to dig into the world of the audio story? Well, because I like to think that I'm a creative person and I like to, so I always want to keep doing things. And while I'm waiting for these other projects to happen, I've got, you know, several irons in the fire, but while I'm waiting for something to, to, uh, get the flag, the green light, um, I want to keep doing things. And, to do something that's audio again is is low budget because you know I've got all my own audio equipment. I know actors who are willing to come in and, and perform things for free. You know they they get an IMDb credit or they get uh, something for their um, their voice acting reel, which you know because I'm happy to share all this stuff. And I just have there's just lots of sto- lots of lots more stories, you know. And to do some of these things as a short film or or put them together and make an anthology feature out of them um, would just be too expensive. I mean, the the uh, the episode that just debuted on Halloween has animatronic dinosaurs in it, and <laughs> so there's no way, obviously, I could I could do that. Right. Um, but again, it, it 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 lets me keep directing, it lets me keep writing, and it lets me keep using talent um, that are otherwise sitting around, you know, themselves waiting for projects to happen. So everybody gets to keep busy. And even though the show itself is in the model of the old radio plays, Mm -hmm. what's interesting is Phoenix Things really allows you to connect with a new medium because you're releasing it digitally. You Mm -hmm. release the episodes via YouTube. Right. So in a way, although it's this thing that's kind of rooted in an old timey format, 
it's connecting with a whole new millennial audience because you're on digital multi-platform. Yes. So, so I think that's a really and you and it's available for free for anyone who wants to listen to it. Right. There's no there's no charge for it. It's free on YouTube. Um, and the episodes of uh, most of them are R-rated. There's language. There's some sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get to explore lots of different subjects and lots of different genres. I was ha- I'm happy to say that I was in a recent episode uh, and uh, it is very R-rated um, <laughs> in a uh, very violent kind of way. Um, and it was a joy. I had a great time coming and recording that with you. Yeah. A couple of them, like there, there is a lot of violence in some of these too. And again, you get to picture it in your mind you can make it as violent and as gory as you want absolutely (laughs) so you know we just discussed a a good chunk of the body of work that you've done Mm -hmm. uh and you know a lot of the themes that you return to are uh gay content yes as a filmmaker who has been working within that that kind of content for a while have you met resistance trying to get your movies out into the world i mean we talked a little bit about bite marks but like your greater oeuvre you know you submit do you think that it's harder for filmmakers to release queer content yeah i think it is i mean you know i know we all thought uh, the sun had finally risen over the horizon when Brokeback mountain was a hit but the f- truth of the matter is it really didn't change things that much um mm-hmm. gay stuff is pretty much relegated to indie film um and if you're gonna do a, a movie with a really strong queer storylines like that it's probably going to be relegated to indie film you're going to have a better chance of finding the financing if it's if it's any film because right. the big studios are all about money, and you know if and they still think that um, gay content isn't got is is a niche thing and it's only going to draw in a small demographic. But there certainly has been a shift though from the '90s to now, like you know, with the success of uh, Moonlight. I think Moonlight did more mm-hmm. in, in in recent years. Then Brokeback did, although Brokeback was landmark. From from Moonlight winning Best Picture last year in that very chaotic moment, uh, <laughs> we're seeing some more queer-oriented films. Carol, Call Me By Your Name is about to come out. Do you think the tide is finally turning? I think Brokeback Mountain was a big, was a, a big monumental bump for gay stuff, but I think it... it sloped back down really quickly. Now I think it's maybe because of Moonlight, it's starting to come back up again. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are getting a few more films like the ones you said. Um, But I think it's time. It's going to have to be one of those like time will tell moments to see if it, if it's sustainable. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure with the current political climate, if it is, um, it may be, because of the current political climate, it may be just like a, a, a you know a filmic artistic backlash against that. I'd like to believe it's a, re- a rallying cry, honestly. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Um, but again, you know, who knows? We all thought after Brokeback that we were gonna all our movies were gonna be playing at the at the local Cineplex. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think anybody who makes a film has that dream. Um, but you know, the important thing is to keep being out there and keep making content. True. Uh, so we talked a little bit about how you've made movies about monsters mm-hmm. and you've made movies with gay content and those are fictional stories but you have a true life story of an encounter with a real monster who happened to be gay could you share that tale sure um back when i was living in chicago 
um, there was a gay bar I used to go to all the time. It was called Carol Speakeasy. Now, this was, what, the 90s? I think early 90s, something like that. And so I used to go to this bar all the time. And I was in there one particular night on a weekend. And I saw this attractive blonde guy standing at the bar. So I went up to him and started talking to him. And it became apparent very quickly to me that he really wasn't interested in me. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, you try. You win some, you lose some. And so I left. And then, you know, it's like... a a few months later, I'm walking from my apartment to the grocery store and I pass one of those uh, newspaper boxes and I look in and on the front window, the front page of the paper in the window, it talks about Wisconsin serial killer cannibal, you know, finally arrested. And I'm like, what? And I look at that and they show a picture of the guy and it's the same guy I was talking to in the bar. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I didn't realize at the time, but I was hitting on Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I just, it just, it flipped flipped me out. So I was just like, oh my God. I like that your initial takeaway was where you, you win some, you lose some, but I think in this case you, (laughs) you definitely won. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's all kinds of dangers for gay men out there and they're not all like being bashed. Um, and it's just, I think it's important that when you do, like, if you are going to like sleep around, be promiscuous, whatever that you, you know, you just be careful, right? You know, if he if he had if truthfully if he had said to me, "Hey, yeah, uh, I like you. Um, come back to my apartment in Milwaukee," I would have said, "No, thanks." Well, that would <laughs> be like an hour and a half in the car. Right. That's a, you know, very few lays are worth that. Right. Well, I mean, like, look, we're here in L.A. and we won't even go to another neighborhood. <laughs> like, if you live in West Hollywood and someone's like, "I live in Santa Monica," I'm like, "You might as well be in France." Uh, <laughs> How's the parking? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do I have to take the 405? <laughs> uh, so um, I know that you are very prolific and you stay very busy. What are you working on right now? I'm working on a few things right now, actually. Um, I'm actually editing a feature-length documentary directed by Vito Trabuco, who directed uh, Bloody Bloody Bible Camp and Never Open the Door. And it's a documentary about uh, stuntman slash actor slash uh, professional henchman Al Leong, who, if you've ever seen Die Hard or Big Trouble in Little China uh, or Lethal Weapon, you'll recognize him right away. He's the guy with the receding hairline, but the long hair and a Fu Manchu mustache. Um, so, yeah, we're working on a, docu- uh, a documentary about him. Um, it's shot. I'm editing it. Uh, hopefully ha- er, trying to get it, it done by the end of the year. Um, and then... Um, I'm writing new, more additional episodes for Fiendish Things. We're still re- recording those for season two. Excellent. Uh, we've got the first four in the can and trying to do four more for uh, before the end of the season. And I just created a new project. Um, it's going to be a web series uh, called Medium Rare, and it stars Vince Cusimano. Who I'm actually in the episode of Fiendish Things with. That's right. Yeah, you guys co-star in in the episode of Fiendish Things, which is called Easy Money, mm-hmm. and should actually that should also be premiering today. Oh, on on the seventeenth. Yeah, today, November seventeenth, is That's a right. very good day <laughs> for both me and Mark Bessinger. So it, we're going to do this web series um, again. It's set in one room. He's he plays a medium who uh, takes clients who pay him to channel the spirits of their deceased or someone who's dead they want to talk to Mm -hmm. and each episode is about 
the particular person that is channeled and their relationship to the to the client. And Vince is really good for this because not only can he play the character of the medium, but he also plays the character of whoever's spirit is talking through his body. Oh. Because they also affect he also will have to affect their mannerisms, their style of speech. Um, and it's going to be I think it's going to be a fun show. It's also going, but it's also going to be, it's going to be very dark. We're going very dark with it and, um, and very downbeat with it. We just wanted to do something that was really kind of, kind of dark in that way, you know? Well, I'll look forward to that. Have you ever visited a medium? No, I have not. <laughs> I haven't either. I was just curious. It's it's. Uh, I don't want to say I don't believe in it. I'm I'm a straight up Scully in life, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I believe that there are things otherworldly, but I also want to exhaust all, all human uh, reasoning first. Uh, so. Um, I've never been to a medium, but I've watched Long Island Medium, and uh, I really, you know, enjoy the exploits of Teresa Caputo uh, because she reminds me of Italian relatives of mine. I'm really going off on on a side <laughs> adventure here. When all I wanted to know is if you've ever gone to a medium. Um, uh, you know, I've had my fortune told. I, I've had someone do uh, read my palm, and they were like, "Oh, you have trouble with your." parents don't you i'm like duh who doesn't you know but and they were like uh oh and you're gonna be successful i'm like when oh i can't tell you that but do you remember and this is not to decry like because he was very successful and i'm sure that uh you know there there is a power there if if you know if that's your thing but do you remember crossing over with john edwards when that show was like very popular uh i used to be very fascinated because he would like stand in front of the audience and he'd be like i'm getting uh Someone named Annie. I'm like, well, who the fuck doesn't know an Annie? Like, you know, but then, of course, like the things that he would then proceed to tell him is way more detailed. But like, I always thought I was interested, like how it would always begin with a very general question that literally like someone's father. I'm like, yes, everyone has a dad. (laughs) Well, well, let me go further back. Do you remember the amazing Kreskin? I know of, but I don't really know. I used to watch him when I was younger and. And of course, it was the same thing. You know, someone's here from Mississippi. Oh, right. that's me. And then it found out later that he was before the show. He would send his assistant out to the parking lot and write down license plates from from out of town, and then and then come in and say, "Well, yeah, there's a you know there's a Mississippi license plate in the parking lot," and he would take that and and go with it. But and just so listeners don't think like I'm a total curmudgeon, I will watch uh, is it Hollywood Medium with Tyler Henry. Um, and is that the guy, the gay guy with? Who's uh, who's thin and and yeah, I think that like I mean he seems like the real deal because I've like the reactions that he gets from people are just very like wow yeah, yeah I I saw him uh, I've never seen his show but I saw him he uh, on on BuzzFeed the Try Guys on BuzzFeed did an episode where they all had meetings with him and I watched it and I'm thinking. And I kept looking at him like, God, he seems so familiar. And then I remember, then I thought, you know what? He's acting just like um, the guy who played Lex Luthor in Batman versus Superman. Oh, Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. It's like, I wonder if Jesse Eisenberg took that guy as his inspiration because they act exactly the same. Their speech patterns, everything. And I thought that was just so funny. That's interesting. I, uh, yeah. I mean, who knows? <laughs> Do you, uh, what are you watching lately? That's always, yeah. What, what, you watch a lot of films. What has, uh, really lit a fire under you as a, as a creator or just an audience member? Um, 
You know, I do watch a lot, a lot of movies, and every October I participate in this thing called the October Halloween Horror Challenge, where uh, several people and myself try to cram as many horror films into the month as we can. Mm-hmm. And this this year I was able to do 121 and Which is staggering, by the way. It, it is, although I didn't break my record of 134, which was last year. I watched 30 movies this year. <laughs> one a day, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the one that I've seen lately that just kind of, like, got me all kind of revved up was Hush. I I love that movie, and I just thought it was, it was something – I just thought it was clever – in that he takes the slasher film and turns it on his head, he gives it a new angle, right. which is always appreciated. And that's what I like to do in, in, in you know in, in my work is to try to take something, even if it's something tried and true, but give it a different spin um, to put a, a refreshing new light on it. So yeah, there's a, what I like about Hush is how much dread is in it, mm-hmm. which I think we lost for a while in the horror modern horror cinema. In a way, uh, I when I first saw Hush, although they're ve- very different, it made me think of this very little scene horror movie. Uh, oh, very little scene, because I'm about to say this, and it's, the pun will be apparent. <laughs> called See No Evil, that Mia Farrow was in in the '70s, where she's blind yeah. and she's living in an estate, and it's a home invasion film where these men start tormenting her, but she can't see them. It's like a much more amped up version of Wait Until Dark. Oh, okay, and. Uh, it's a movie that I remember seeing on late night cable as a kid, and I still think it's it's kind of terrifying. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know, Mia Farrow and with Rosemary's Baby and other movies she was in has has more prestige genre titles to her name. But this is one of those that I always want people to check out because there's that. Uh, that thing that Hush does as well, where there's the disability that l- is part of the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, it makes it feel more human in a yeah. way. Mm-hmm. And it also makes it more scary. Yes. No, Hush was great. Well, as I know, you're always watching things. So I always look to you for good advice about what to check out. Um, oh, don't do that. Cause my, my taste is terrible. <laughs> I love <laughs> movies. I can say, look, I can tell you now I watch Dracula versus Frankenstein more often than I watch Citizen Kane. Or The Exorcist, but I will stand by that movie. It's the, it's a monster kid movie. It's the ultimate. You know, it reminds me of what I used to do on Super Eight. The Al Adamson film. Yes, exactly. I think that Al Adamson is an underrated filmmaker in the world of genre horror. Yeah, I do too. And his story itself, because uh, he was murdered and buried under a jacuzzi. Uh, I mean, that's just the highlight. But um, there's well, a it's a low film. light, technically. But there's a feature <laughs> film there. There's a feature film there. And I'm really surprised that no one has has done it yet, because in that Ed Wood sort of way, mm-hmm. there's there's as much drama off the offset as there is on. Mm-hmm. Probably more when you look at his movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's interesting. So before we head off into the night, I like to ask uh, our guests: Is there anything that you would like? listeners to know that we haven't talked about or any words of wisdom you'd like to impart to people about your life in horror, your life as a filmmaker, whatever. I would just say that not necessarily about me or my life in horror, but just know that there's always going to be a fan for whatever you do. And if you make a movie and it gets panned really badly, just remember that there are people out there who still like it. And that doesn't mean you should stop. 
filmmaking, like anything else, is an ongoing process. And the more you work in it the and hone your skills, the better you're going to be. So there are a lot of people out there who like to just attack movies, especially low-budget horror films. Mm-hmm. So if your film gets panned, um, you know, cry, wipe your tears, and then move on and, you know, work on something else. Don't let that discourage you. Um, because you know you may have a there may be a Halloween in your right. somewhere deep inside of you that has that you have to, to to make all these other films to get it to come out first. So I mean, stay creative, um, keep working, um, appreciate other people's work, see what you can bring to that in, in your own work, and um, just keep creating. I think that that is. A beautiful and significant message and you know the only thing that I would add is just if you don't see yourself in film make one there you go persistence is the artist's friend Mark where can people find you uh, the best place to find me is on Facebook Mark with a K Bessinger B-E-S-S-E-N-G-E-R I love to talk to people just you know, as long as they don't stalk me <laughs> and if you are going to stalk me at least send me some good gifts True. Always important. Well, Mark, thank you for joining us here today. Much appreciated. Uh, It was a great conversation. And for listeners, uh, just a reminder, Mark's movie Rhapsody does debut today on Reverie. So please check that out as well as all his other films and listen to Fiendish Things. And uh, thank you, Mark, so much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. It was my pleasure. And I had a blast. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.